0: Hey, listeners, you're on with Union, Michael, and Evan, and this is State of the Pod.
1: Hey, I'm Michael, and State of the Pod is a student-driven podcast production team at Cornell, and we aim to cover all the emerging issues in science and technology, because these issues affect everyone.
2: Today, we want to talk about a device that's become really iconic for our generation, and trace how this product marketed to help users cut back on smoking has reached a whole generation of non-smokers.
0: So our story starts with two engineering grad students at Stanford. Bowen and Monsies were partners for their product design project. They were driven by this one key idea. How does one create a new ritual to replace the old one? So they were referring here to smoking, and their thesis presentation showcased their pitch to bring tobacco back to this luxury item it was before instead of a drug delivery device that traditional cigarettes have now become.
2: To be fair, some can say that they are well-intentioned in helping mitigate this public health crisis, as heavy smokers, they've had quite a stake in this. At the same time, what drove forward their sleek, tech savvy designs ultimately into teen markets was a desire to, as they said, disrupt the most powerful market, referring to the tobacco industry.
0: So that brings us to this current point of one of the fastest growing consumer products in history. In 2017, Juul Labs, a parent company manufacturing these devices, sold over 60 million products. They've been hit with numerous class-action lawsuits for their false advertising and lifestyle-based ad campaigns. So this is a company that has, you know, frequently promoted these devices in nightclubs where recent college grads frequent and put up neon billboards in Times Square. However, another testament to their truly innovative nature is just how successful they have been among their competitors. Now, the reason former predecessors have been unable to come up with designs that are more sleek and cut down on the size and weight of the design lies in this nicotine delivery mechanism. After a decade of their original product conception, these two engineers finally came across this this liquid nicotine delivery system through nicotine salts. So these salts are designed to deliver a hit equitable to that of a cigarette. And the chemical in these juice salts are ionized, and a positive charge makes it slightly less volatile and less harsh. And that's why each hit feels more like smoking a cigarette instead of the harsher cigar equivalent. So what's even more alarming is that many companies have now tried to come up with the similar uh, systems of delivering nicotine. And Jewel Labs have now filed over a dozen or so complaints against these companies for allegedly infringing upon its trade secret. So what this means is that we will now be seeing more of these devices modeled after the original technology from Juul Labs, and these designs will continue attracting younger generations.
1: The main concern that I have with the Juul epidemic and its rising popularity is actually with the appeal it presents to younger teens and adolescents. You see, I have a younger sister who's attending middle school right now, and the other day she called me, and I could sense she was upset about one thing or another. And it turns out that one of her close friends had actually got their hands on a jewel and they tried it. And she said that it resembled, you know, a flash drive or USB of some kind. And then it really hit me, that the jewel can easily be seen as a toy or some flashy device. She had said she liked it and that the design was eye-catching. And I think that's where the problem lies. Like Union said, I agree that the Stanford scientists behind the jewel were able to design it so that it caters to this new wave of children who enjoy being tech-savvy, and the jewels' purpose is to be part of a new market. And this works out really well, actually, that targets these unsuspecting teens. The jewels appeal to them in a very visual manner, and the nicotine within the jewels then primes their brains for addiction. And this essentially secures these adolescents or teens to be lifelong users of the jewel. And it's very similar to what has happened with cigarettes in the past. And because of this, it really got me thinking of the health effects that accompany, you know, juuling, And this made me want to know more about nicotine and its effects on teens. And luckily, I actually recently had the chance to sit down with a professor at Cornell to further discuss these issues. Hi, Professor Oswald. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your research interests, and your time here at Cornell? My name is Robert
3: Oswald. I'm in the Department of Molecular Medicine at Cornell. That's in the College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, I've been at Cornell for 38 years, um, teaching and doing research. Um, Our interest is has always been in brain receptors. Uh, We spent a lot of time studying nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, the ones we're talking about here. We also study uh, glutamate receptors, which are also in the the brain, and mediate many of the important processes in the brain, such as learning and memory, and are involved in a lot of uh, neural diseases.
1: So our first question for you today is, How does early exposure to nicotine affect brain development and these teenagers, adolescents? Is it easier to get addicted or hooked when they're exposed to these chemicals earlier on? Um,
3: Yeah, I think
1: the main thing to remember is nicotine is
3: uh, it interacts with these receptors called nicotinic acetylcholine receptors that are actually all over the body, uh, mainly in the nervous system and and in uh, in the brain. Probably what's most important for addiction is the effects in the frontal cortex, and that's what's really developing during adolescence, more so than the, what we call older brain structures. So during that time, you know, things are developing, nicotine interacts with them, you know, changes neuronal connections, and can certainly cause addiction probably more significantly and and, and longer lasting um,
1: than one might see in adults. So nicotine is a substance that's kind of known to prime the brain for addiction. Do you agree with this? Would you mind breaking down this process for us and how it works?
3: Sure. Um, Nicotine uh, interacts with nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Um, There are a number of these types of receptors in the brain, and uh, they're probably on the order of 12 gene products or 13 gene products. Uh, the ones that are most important for nicotine addiction are called alpha-4-beta-2. and It's actually the beta-2 one that's the most important. And they have very high affinity for nicotine. Uh, what nicotine does is activate these receptors. So what that means is that they are the receptors that are in a cell membrane. And uh, when, when nicotine binds, the ch- there's a channel that opens up that allows... Uh, positively charged things to go through it like sodium and potassium uh, etc but it's kind of interesting so they activate them but then if nicotine stays around for a long time as it does when you smoke then they close down and so they're inactivated after long-term use And what the body does when it sees its receptors being inactivated for a long period of time is to produce more of them. So the neuronal cells produce more of this receptor, puts it on the cell surface. Then if you take the nicotine away, you have all these extra receptors there. The body wants more and more nicotine. So that's the, the simple Explanation of addiction: You just have to increase the number of these receptors. You want more and more nicotine.
1: So, in regards to these nicotine salts, Union mentioned earlier, the reason Jewel Labs have found such great success can be attributed to their novel delivery mechanism. Would delivering the nicotine in this manner produce a harder hit or change the dosage compared to vape pens or more traditional cigarettes?
3: Yes. Yeah,
1: that's that. That, as I understand it, is the
3: reason for making the nicotine salt. The nicotine salt is made with benzoic acid. Um, so nicotine is a base, and in most, in like in e-cigarettes, it's presented with something like glycerol, and it doesn't. It's probably mostly uncharged in that case. Um, if you put it in combination with an acid like benzoic acid, it becomes a salt, not like sodium chloride, like table salt, but it's a positive charge and a negative charge that go together, and then they could form something like, you know, you know precipitate of salt. Um, when that is put in a jewel, uh, it has the effect of decreasing the harshness of nicotine. So I. I I don't have any personal experience with this. This is what their, their argument is. So what they can do is increase the amount of nicotine that's introduced to the user. So in, in a vape pen or e-cigarette, you might have a much lower concentration of nicotine because if you increased it to the level that was in a jewel, it would be so harsh nobody would be able to stand it. So they, they use this nicotine salt to increase
1: the nicotine dose. And you covered this earlier when I asked you a previous question, but why is it so difficult for nicotine users to quit? What biological functions anchors a person to their Juul or vape pen? Well, as, as I said, it's, it's there are biological changes.
3: There are molecular changes that go on in the brain. We know that there are changes in the levels of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, specifically the... Um, alpha-4, beta-2 variety that's very present uh, and very important for, for nicotine. But there are probably also others, you know, reinforcing stimuli that um, someone could say, you could say
2: that they are also addicted to
1: that. Thanks so much for coming in. It's been great having you on here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Although powerful, the chemical properties of Joule aren't the only reason for its rapid expansion. It's become a cultural phenomenon due to the social factors surrounding it. Here to talk with us about the human side of JEWEL is student activist Jack Waxman. So Jack, can you tell us about how you first
4: came to realize that JEWEL was a serious problem in your high school? Sure thing. So when I was a junior at Scarborough High School, um, JEWEL basically just spread like wildfire amongst my friends, amongst my peers, And it was in January of that year, I think it was 2017, in which it went from one or two kids using it in the bathroom to every time I went to the bathroom, every time I talked to my friends, it was part of the conversation, Mm -hmm. part of what was going on. So that summer I had the opportunity to intern for Senator Schumer. And as an intern I got to choose a policy paper topic, and I chose to focus on the jewel. And it was during that internship that summer that I understood really what nicotine was, and I understood that. That same thing that really caused all this death and this addiction and all this negative stuff for our society in the 20th century, that same thing, cigarettes is the same thing right now in Mm e-cigarettes in the 21st century. So that really frustrated me, and I felt like it was a sort of a bait-and-switch, because cigarettes are really stigmatized in our country, um, and they are not part of the conversation in middle schools and high schools. So, I feel like what these companies did is they really moved this ability to addict a generation on nicotine mm-hmm. from cigarettes to e cigarettes um, and use the same mechanism of nicotine. Looking at your high school friends, how often would you say the average kid joules? So, I can't speak for everyone, but I can say that some of my closest friends and the kids that were in my video, Jewels Against Jewel, were using it once every hour. And what that meant is it was constantly on their mind. And when you're addicted to nicotine, you go through this kind of this cycle, a 24-hour, day week cycle in which you hit the jewel, you feel great, this state of euphoria, and then you go through this really this period of withdrawal. And you feel terrible, it's dysphoria, and you need to use it, and then you just go through the cycle again and again.
0: So speaking on that, I think all of America is especially concerned because it hits such a young adolescent population. And that also means they're very susceptible to peer pressure and stool trends. So did you feel that was hard for you to resist those trends? And can you also talk more about how you first conceived this idea of starting a video campaign to draw attention to this issue?
4: Yeah, the, the peer pressure thing, it, it, it's so important because yeah, there's this conception that jewel is this cool thing, right? And it's our job right now to show that it actually isn't cool and to stigmatize it in the same way that cigarettes are stigmatized right now. We passed When we actually uh, made this video last May, after that what we did is we partnered with the Westchester County government. And for, the, for those ensuing next several months, we actually worked really hard and we passed the bill of tobacco 21. And now in Westchester County, you have to be 21 to buy these products. But then you have to think about what's, what's the next step. And in my opinion, it goes down to flavors. Because in 2009, Congress passed the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, and that banned flavored cigarettes across the board. And in eight years, the rates went from around eight, 16% to around 8% um, teenage use. But it exempted these cigarettes. So right now you have this flavor loophole, um, and the flavors are drawing the kids in, and nicotine is forcing them to stay. And you have companies like The Jewel that are exploiting this loophole to addict our generation to nicotine.
0: So Jack, all the policy changes you mentioned are certainly a step in the right direction, and you have obviously taken on a very active role in pushing this forward. But there's been a lot of pushback on banning these flavor pods, as I'm sure you're aware, because some have cited that the bigger issue, the often overlooked issue, is the design choices that have been responsible for attracting youth. So I'm referring here to the sleek design and the white vapor that dissipates rather quickly and allow users to be more discreet. Flavor pods, or just flavors in general, uh, help users get off smoking, or turn towards e-cigarettes because they're a more attractive alternative. So how would you respond to those claims?
4: Yeah, those are are all really claims that are part of the conversation today. Um, And to address your point about the flavors, um, let's be clear about something. Right, We have two groups right now in our society that are stakeholders in this issue. Whenever you look at a policy proposal, you have to think about how can we put something on the table that helps both groups um, as a net win right? How can you help the parents and help the kids? Um, I don't think the answer is banning e-cigarettes. I also don't think the answer is doing nothing. I think the answer is taking the flavors that appeal to kids off the market, and at the same time, leaving the same flavors that these adults have smoked for 20, 30, 40 years on the table. That way, you're preventing kids from getting on this on-ramp of addiction, and at the same time, you're still allowing for these adults to get off. And to go to your point about kind of the underlying factors of why these products look cool, I, you know, there's nothing really you can do about it, right? You can't say, oh, Silicon Valley, don't innovate, don't make your products look great. You know, there are a lot of great products that have come out of Silicon Valley, right? Products that have made our lives easier, more efficient, our lives more interconnected. Because of that, I'm able to FaceTime my parents, my brother, my young sister. Um, so I don't think the answer is is waving our fingers at Silicon Valley and saying, No, don't make this product look cool. I think the answer is really addressing what we can address, but at the same time, also trying to create a culture in which kids reject these products altogether.
0: Well, that certainly gives us a lot to think about. So it's been great talking to you, Jack, and yeah, thank you so much. It was nice to meet you you
2: both. Wow, that was really interesting. I uh, can't wait to see where this goes in the future.
0: And yeah, here at State of the Pog, we try to cover all the most pressing issues in science and tech.
1: Yeah, so be sure to stay tuned and see what we have up next. State
2: of the Paw, science, and society. We
0: were told to say that.
2: This is an outro. And
0: we're out. State of the Paw is produced by a team of students passionate about their interests and the intersection between science and society. I'd like to thank my awesome co-host today for writing a fantastic story with me and our interviewees, Professor Robert Oswald and Jack Waxman, for providing insightful interviews into their work and interests. I'd like to thank Professor Mark Sarbury of the Investigative Biology Department for first hearing me out when I came to him with his pitch for a student podcast group and providing us with so much insight and guidance regarding the ins and outs of this production process and being our number one supporter from the very beginning. Thank you goes out to Miss Kitty Difford for all her tech expertise and being my emotional support as well during the website design process. A big shout out goes to David Ray, our music producer for the catchy audio you heard today. And last but not least, I'd like to thank my inspiring production team for all their hard work and an incredible first season. We hope you enjoy stay of the Pod.